So they took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself, he went to the place called Place of the Skull in Hebrew Golgotha. There they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side with Jesus between them. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin and Greek so that many people could read it. Then the leading priest objected and said to Pilate, Change it from the King of the Jews to, He said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate replied, No, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, Rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. This fulfilled the scripture that says, They divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. So that is what they did. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there, beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. The death of Jesus. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and released his spirit. It was the day of preparation. And the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath and a very special Sabbath because it was the Passover. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water flowed out. This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you also can believe. These things happen in fulfillment of the scriptures that say, Not one of his bones will be broken, and they will look on the one they pierced. The Burial of Jesus Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus, because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with spices and long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so, because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there.
Well, dear ones, now that we've heard the words and we've seen the images, and while they're fresh in our mind's eye, I would like for us to take a few minutes as a community and personally to reflect on these words. And as we do so, I'd like to um, focus in on verses 35 and 36, where John writes, And the person who saw it has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not a bone of his will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. That's the whole purpose of John's gospel, so that you may believe. That you may believe first that the world is in need of restoration, reconciliation, and transformation. That the world is horribly crippled, it's compromised, it's stained, it's corrupted. It's not that we can't behold beauty, it's just that our definitions of beauty have been compromised. That this was all God's plan, that this was not chaotic, that this was not the world out of control, that this was in fact God's plan. In fact, three times between verses 28 and 36, John uses the similar word, uh, that means completed or fulfilled or finished, that this is not purposelessness expressed, this is God's hand being revealed. And thirdly, because he's writing that we may believe, we have to choose. Uh, we have a choice to make. Will we believe? And belief in the scripture, again, is not something that we simply give cognitive assent to or that it's another piece of information that we kind of ascribe to, but it has no practical import or consequence for our daily lives. Uh, belief isn't something that we simply embrace, but it doesn't uh, inconvenience our lives in any way. Belief in the scriptures is a surrender. It's a devotion. It's not only a way of seeing the world and of viewing God, but it's also a way of deciding. It's a way of acting. It guides our behavior, our lifestyle, our choices. And so John is writing that we may believe. And this decision to believe is a daily choice. It requires intentionality. Every day, you and I need to make a personal decision that we are believing afresh in this truth, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And a community, a church, is a group of people, it's, it's, a, it's a community, it's a gathering of people who publicly identify together and share this personal decision and this personal commitment to struggle to express this devotion that we hold dear and true in our minds and in our hearts. So with that in mind, I want to ask us three questions this morning as we look at the cross as we hear these words, as we consider these images that we've seen, three questions. If not him, who? If not him, how? And if not him, what? So the first question is, if not him, who? Scripture says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So that in and of itself has a fundamental presupposition that the world needs reconciliation. If you believe that, if you believe that the world needs reconciliation, that the world needs restoration, if the world needs transformation, then the question is, who can bring it? Someone once said that we do not class Jesus 
with others. In fact, sometimes it's a great offense because we think of Napoleon, uh, we think of Charles the Great or Alexander the Great, but we don't think of Jesus the Great. We just think of Jesus. If not him, who? Who in the history of the world do you think is capable of being that agent of reconciliation with God, that agent of restoration between humanity and God? Who do you think is capable of bringing a transformation of humanity from the inside out that overflows into our care for one another, our concepts and understandings of what justice looks like, of concepts of creation care? Uh, who do you think has embodied, incarnated all that we truly long and yearn for? If not him, who? Secondly, if not him, how? If the world needs reconciliation with God, if the world needs restoration with God, if the world needs restoration of relationships, if, if we aspire and yearn for human transformation, then the question is, how does that happen? John's testimony is it happens on the day that Jesus dies on the cross. That in his death, a mediator was being born between God and man, that Jesus was now the mediator, that through the cross, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might be transformed and become the righteousness of God. Elsewhere, Scripture says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And elsewhere, it says, Greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friends, and that this is love. Not that we first loved him, but that he first loved us and gave his son to die for us. John is writing these words down. He's, he's writing down his testimony. He's bearing witness that this is true. And he's inviting our belief. A theologian, Emil Brunner, wrote years ago in Christianity... Faith in the mediator is not something optional, not something about which, in the last resort, it is possible to hold different opinions. If we are only united on the main point, for faith in the mediator, in the event which took place once and for all, a revealed atonement, is the Christian religion itself. It is the main point. It is not something alongside of the center. It is the substance and kernel, not the husk. This is so true that we may even say, in distinction from all other forms of religion, the Christian religion is faith in the one mediator. And there is no other possibility of being a Christian than through faith in that which took place once for all, revelation and atonement through the mediator. The cross is the badge of our Christian faith. Life begins at the cross. Transformation begins at the cross because reconciliation and restoration begins at the cross. Christians are women and men and youth and children. Christians are people and a community that wholeheartedly believe that this is true with conviction and confidence and without compromise. We don't think that Jesus is a mediator. 
we behold and confess that he is the mediator. He is the way between God and man. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And yet when he says that, it never sounds exclusive. It's inviting. If not him, who? If not him, how? And finally, if not him, what? What will you base your life on? Napoleon, Alexander the Great, Hitler, Stalin, they subdued empires through force and coercion. Jesus never exercised force, and yet people follow him to this day. Billions of people follow him today, to this day. Billions of people surrendering their lives in devotion who believe and confess with one voice that Jesus Christ is the mediator between humanity and God. He's the restorer of the image of God in humanity. He's the transformer of humanity's very self into something that represents a, a view that is more noble, more dignified, more holy and sacred as he transforms us into the image of God. Paul will write later in his letters that we are new creations in Christ. Behold, the old is passing away. So what will you base your life on? If not him, then what? Somebody said, love your neighbor as yourself. Somebody said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Somebody said, I'm the door. Somebody said, I am the resurrection and the life. You see, when Jesus says these things, they have authority without arrogance or condescension. No one taught like Jesus taught. No one taught what Jesus taught. And no one claimed what Jesus claimed. And yet, in all of that, Never once does he sound like he's tooting his own horn, that he's arrogant, that he's condescending, that he's patronizing, that he's exclusive, that in claiming things for himself, that he's putting other people down. If not him, what will you base your life on? What teachings will you follow? What lifestyle will you pursue? What will inspire and inform how you treat others? how you look on others different from yourselves, how you will disagree, what teaching will become the foundation for your life and what person will you base that upon? You see, John, the disciple who's witnessing all of this, he's writing because he has seen it, he believes it to be true, and he's inviting others to share that faith and belief with him. Let me close with this question that Frederick Buechner asks in his book, The Magnificent Defeat. And now, brothers and sisters, I will ask you a terrible question. And God knows I ask it also of myself. Is the truth beyond all truths, beyond the stars, just this, that to live without him is the real death, that to die with him the only life? What a profound question, that to live without him is the real death and to die with him the only life. As we get ready to share communion together we have to make a personal decision afresh this morning. A personal choice to believe whether it's for our the first time where we devote our lives to Christ or whether it's for the hundredth time or the thousandth time it really is immaterial. Today is the day for us to make a belief decision. 
and to make that personal decision before we gather together as a community because a Christian community is simply the gathering of people who share and confess that they have made that personal decision, that they have answered the question, is it better to live without Him or is it better to die with Him? Do we die if we live without Him or do we live if we die with Him? How you answer that question will indicate whether you confess this to be true.